Jeff Hill. Uh, happy to be here this morning. All right, as that's coming up on the screen. Again, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth." I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By way of introduction this morning, um, I'm going to talk about a man named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was an American missionary to Burma, uh, which is now called Myanmar, in the early 1800s. After Judson's conversion during college, he felt a call to the mission field and to participate in the early missionary movement uh, to the British colonies in India. However, he fell in love with a one Anne Hasseltine and wrote the following letter to her father. This letter gives us an excellent view into his call to suffer and persevere in his work. His letter says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen lamb and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this 
for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Adoniram and Anne were married on February 5th, 1812. Together, the two would experience hardship that I have a difficult time imagining. After arriving in India and later moving to Burma, Judson made 18 converts in 22 years. If the work wasn't hard enough, the British Empire would declare war against Burma in 1824. Judson, although American, was arrested for being a British spy. And he spent almost two years in prison, and the prison that he was in had a death rate of over 90%. In this prison, Judson would spend days at a time confined in a box. And this box wasn't even big enough for him to roll over in. However, during his time in prison, Thankfully, mercifully, his wife was allowed to come visit him and she would bring him food so that he could survive, all the while nursing their newborn baby, which was their third baby. Their first two children died. One died on the way to India and one, the second died in India. So as she's trying to nurse their newborn... She's also trying to keep her husband alive. At the end of the war, uh, Adoniram was released. However, a few months after, Anne finally succumbed to disease and passed. And then six months after that, their third child also died at the age of two. Adoniram Johnson was well acquainted with suffering and yet he persevered. Towards the end of his time on earth, which he died at the age of 61, uh, just shy of 40 of those years being served on the mission field, Judson had wrote a, a letter to the widow of another worker that was laboring there with him in Burma. His words here beautifully exemplify what it means to persevere with Christ in suffering, and in death. He writes, You are now drinking the bitter cup whose dregs I am somewhat acquainted with. And though for some time you have been aware of its approach, I venture to say it is far bitterer than you expected. It is common for persons in your situation to refuse all consolation, to cling to the dead, and to fear that they shall too soon forget the dear object of their affections. But don't be concerned. I can assure you that months and months of heart-rending anguish are before you, whether you will or not. I can only advise you to take the cup 
with both hands and sit down quietly to the bitter repast which God has appointed for your sanctification. As for your beloved, know that all his tears are wiped away and that the diadem which encircles his brow outshines the sun. Little Sarah, their daughter who had also died, and the other, their unborn infant that had also died, have again found their father, not the frail, sinful mortal that they left here on earth, but an immortal saint, a magnificent, majestic king. What more can you desire for them? While, therefore, your tears flow, let a due proportion be tears of joy. Yet, take the bitter cup with both hands, and sit down to your repast. You will learn a secret, that there is sweetness at the bottom. You will find it the sweetest cup that you have tasted in all your life. You will find heaven coming near to you, and familiarity with your husband's voice will be a connecting link, drawing you almost with the sphere of celestial music. How could Judson face such hardship and not dismiss a single ounce of its pain and still persevere? Towards the end of his life, Judson said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy... I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Judson was able to face suffering through a belief that God was sovereign, but also loving and merciful. In our passage today, we see Jesus himself comforting and giving hope to a suffering people. But in his exhortation for them to persevere, he calls them to trust in his own character and promises. So if you're taking notes, the main idea for our time together this morning is that our perseverance is rooted in the character and promises of Jesus. I'll say it again. Our perseverance is rooted in the character and promises of Jesus. In order to see this main idea, we will discuss two things that perseverance is not, and then we will discuss the two things that it is, and then we will close with what perseverance requires. Okay, so first, what perseverance is not. Perseverance is not found in our own ability. So look again with me at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus is actually saying two things here. He is commending the Philadelphians for not denying his name and for keeping his word. 
but he is also acknowledging their small ability, strength, or power. They have done well in keeping the faith, but Christ has opened a wide door of opportunity for them, and no one can shut the door, no matter what, but yet they are still of little power. The point is this, the Philadelphians and us today are not to walk away from this passage going, you know what, I haven't completely denied the faith, I have not cursed his name and committed apostasy, so I am crushing it. That is not what we are supposed to walk away with. Rather, we are to walk away from this passage saying, oh Lord, it is only by your grace that I even have the faith to pray to you. Please keep me in the faith. Continue to give me the grace to never deny your name. If we are to persevere in the faith in this life, we must be convinced that our ability to persevere is not rooted in ourselves. And if anything, our perseverance is in spite of ourselves. Church, if we are looking within ourselves for any strength to endure hard times, we are wasting our time. We have but little strength. We must look outside of ourselves for endurance. But as we're looking outside of ourselves, we must also be careful not to think that our perseverance is dependent upon our circumstances. Which brings us to our second point of what perseverance is not. Perseverance is not dependent on our circumstances. So in this passage, there is a group of people mentioned uh, that was circumstantial to the Philadelphians in their suffering, this synagogue of Satan. We are directly told that the synagogue of Satan are those who say that they are Jews and are not. It is likely that these are the same or similar people to the Judaizers that Paul references and is the entire motivation for. Thank you for the affirmation, Dave Sutherland. <laughs> I'm getting big north and south from Dave over right now. Uh, that they, they're the whole purpose for the letter to the Galatians. These Judaizers believed that only Jews could call themselves Christian Uh, that they could call themselves the children of God. And if you were a Gentile, in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first, because the Jews were the only children of God. However, this is in Galatians 5.2, why Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. These Judaizers were actively trying to derail the faith of the Philadelphians, saying that you first must be circumcised, and then you must keep the entirety of the Mosaic law, and then you can be accepted by God. That is a false gospel. This is why Jesus, in Revelation 3, says that the synagogue of Satan are those who say that they are Jews— They believed that they were Jews, that they were the children of Abraham, and they were not. 
Also in Galatians chapter three, Paul says, know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This means that because you are ethnically a Jew, it does not mean that you are truly a Jew. It is those who are of faith who are the true children of Abraham. We as believers might be tempted from time to time to blame our sin or our lack of perseverance on our circumstances. The Philadelphians had people actively trying to preach to them a false gospel, and we are no different today. We are surrounded by false gospels. Not only in the sense are we surrounded by false gospels, by the scourge of the prosperity gospel, but we also have the world in its wisdom saying things like, uh, to be true to yourself. Or they try to tell us that our happiness and our salvation are found in self-actualization. I don't even know what that means. But apparently it's a thing. And it can bring, they say, it can bring you happiness and salvation. Or how about this one? Sexual fulfillment. Or this one that I particularly struggle with. Finding our identity and our happiness in what we do for work. None of these things are good news. None of these things are gospels, true gospels. So we might be tempted to look at God and say, how can I possibly believe in you and persevere when I am absolutely inundated with lies and false gospels trying to lead me astray? This is what, this is what Jesus says. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Christ ultimately conquers our enemies for us and promises to subject them to us. Our perseverance is not found in our circumstances. So moving on, what exactly is perseverance? Specifically, what does this text say that perseverance is? First, perseverance is founded on Jesus's character. Look at how he starts this letter to the Philadelphians. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We see three important aspects to Christ's character here, and these are not random exclamations, but intentional reminders for who he, Jesus, is. First, he is holy. To be holy means to be set apart. There is no one like Christ. Second, he is true. In the Greek, both of these phrases, if you'll nerd out with me for a second, are what's called substantive adjectives. So when we say in the English, I know it's really hard for me to say that. I'm from North Carolina. Y'all got to cut me, cut me some slack here. Um, yeah, so when we say in the English that 
Hey, holy one or the true one in the Greek is just holy, true. So when Jesus is introducing himself in this letter, he's saying holy, true, person who's holding the key of David, even though it doesn't say the person. This emphasizes that Jesus is holiness, that Jesus is truth, not that he merely has those characteristics about him, but that he is the very embodiment of holiness and truth. So that when he makes these promises to us in this passage, we are not listening to the synagogue of Satan who is full of lies, but rather we are listening to the one who can only speak truth out of his holiness. Thirdly, we see that Jesus has the key of David. And this, this detail is worth kind of hanging out on for a second. This key of David symbolizes the complete sovereignty of Christ in that he holds the key of authority and government over the church. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 22 and 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, we see the only other places uh, in the Bible where explicit references are to this key of David. They are in reference to two individuals, and we're about to discuss one, who were given this key. They were, give, they were the stewards over the house of David, the people of God. But yet they ultimately failed in managing the kingdom. And their failure is parallel with the destruction of Jerusalem. So we're going to look, and it'll be up here on the screen, uh, Isaiah chapter 22, looking at verse 20. And when we're reading this about Eliakim, think of this is the type and shadow, and Jesus is the true uh, manager of the house. If that's coming up on the screen here. Maybe, maybe, okay. All right, I'll go ahead and start. Isaiah chapter 22, starting in verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him. And I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And on his shoulder, the key of the house of David, he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. So this was a big deal. However, verse 25, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So we see here that although Eliakim was given the key of David, he proved to be a failure as a manager of the house of God. But we know that this man is a type and a shadow of the one to come. 
And as we see in Revelation 3, the one who ultimately holds the key of the house of David, Christ does not fail in his office like Eliakim. It is because of his holy, true, and sovereign character that we know his promises to us will hold true. So next, our second point on what perseverance is. Perseverance is founded on Jesus's promises. We have discovered that our perseverance is rooted in the character of Christ. It is also founded on his promises. There are three main promises that we see in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. The first is that we will triumph over our enemies. The second is that we will have security during trials. And the third is that we will have eternal communion with our holy and true God. We're going to take a look at each of these in turn and see how they help us to persevere. So starting in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. We have already discussed who this synagogue of Satan is, but let us focus now on the promise of our triumph over them. This week at work, I was in a situation where I was reminded of the complaint of Jeremiah 12. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those who are treacherous thrive? But here in Revelation 3, we see that the wicked will not ultimately prosper. And why? Why do we believe that the wicked will not ultimately prosper? God gives us one reason here, because he loves us. It is because of the love of God that he promises that he will ultimately triumph over our enemies for us and that he will subject our enemies to us. This is a very sweet promise. In those moments when we are facing adversity because of wicked people, remember, Jesus loves you. And he promises that they will not triumph over you, but rather he will make them come and bow down at your feet. Now, what Jesus is not talking about here are those people you simply don't like. Just because you have beef with someone does not mean they are part of the synagogue of Satan. Rather, those who are enemies of Christ are also enemies of his people. They are the ones we will ultimately triumph over. So I don't want to see any posts on Facebook that says, Sansa is part of the synagogue of Satan. (laughs) I said that in my wife's voice. Carolyn, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, All right, knowing this, knowing that we will have triumph over our enemies, we can persevere in our faith. The second thing that Jesus promises is that we will have security during trials. So look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
Okay, so like other things in Revelation, this hour of trial is debated. And we're not going to get into exactly what that is right now. But what is safe to draw out of this passage this morning is that Jesus is promising us security during a period of trial. This is true for believers today, for in 2 Peter 2, 9, Peter writes, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So we can have hope and trust in Jesus during times of trial because he promises us deliverance. Lastly, we can endure because Jesus promises us that we will dwell in his presence forever and that he will write his own name on us. To me, this is the sweetest promise in the entire passage. How many of us here can identify with David when he writes in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In this passage, we see what David yearned for, Christ promises. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. How much more bearable is our sufferings when we know that in the end, Jesus will make us a pillar in the temple of God. Here's the cool thing about pillars. They don't get up and walk out. They're usually not cast out either because they're the very things holding the temple up in the first place. Not only is that a future promise, but we actually have a foretaste of that now in this life. Christ says that his church is his own body and that we, as his own body, are the temple in which the indwelling Holy Spirit lives in. Today, Christian, you are the temple of God, and you will not be cast out. You didn't get in. We did not get in. We did not become the temple because we're awesome. Rather, in spite of our lack of awesomeness, where we made part of the temple. So, our continuing lack of awesomeness cannot make us not part of the temple anymore. Jesus even says in this passage, never shall he go out of it. How comforting is it to know that for the one who endures, they can never be cast out of the presence of God. I don't know about y'all, but that makes me want to persevere. Okay, so for our point of application, I want to spend some moments discussing what perseverance requires. So we've talked about the two things that perseverance is not. In order to better understand what 
perseverance is. And we've seen that perseverance is rooted in the character and promises of God. But that's kind of up here, right? What does that actually look like in our day-to-day lives? How exactly, knowing that our perseverance is rooted in the character and promises of Jesus, how do we actually persevere? There is a tension in this passage that we have been intentionally ignoring until now. And this tension helps us make for a great point of application. So, what does perseverance require? Some of us might find the answer very unsatisfying, but it requires perseverance. So check out verse 8. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Those are both in the past tense. The Philadelphians have been persevering. They've been doing it. So what does Jesus tell them to do? Look at verse 11. Hold fast to what you have. Keep doing it. Keep persevering. Just because we've persevered in the past doesn't mean that we can just give up. But rather, we must continue to persevere. We must continue to look at the character and promises of Jesus in order to persevere. That, this word, to hold fast, it means to strongly apprehend or to grab with force. It's the same word that was used when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says that he was arrested. It's the same word. He was grabbed with force. So in this passage, when we see, take hold of your crown, don't let anyone take it away from you. That's what it means to persevere. Keep persevering. So practically, what does that look like? It may be helpful here to spend a moment in personal reflection. How many of us here feel like when we wake up in the morning, their first, our first and chief concern is to grab and hold on tightly that which is most precious to us? Personally and sinfully, the first thing I grab every morning is this. Not just to turn off the alarm, but check my social media feed, see if anybody emailed me, see, I don't know, what other notifications, how well I'll sleep in, etc. To me, that's telling, right? Obviously, I'm not going to stand here before you and say my phone is the most precious thing in the world to me, but is it? We should ask ourselves this kind of question. Not sinfully, I can tell you since my wife Carolyn and I have had our baby girl, I can tell you that every single morning I go, I wake up and go check on her. I may not grab her, my baby, and hold on to, some, uh, and hold on to her like someone is about to break in and steal her, but I am concerned about her whereabouts and safety. In the same way that that, to me, that little baby girl is the most precious thing in this world to me, that is the same way that we are implored to treat the word and promises 
of God. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Check up on it. So what does that look like? What does it look like to hold on tightly to the word and character and promises of God? Where are we told about the character of God? Where do we hear his promises? I don't have one with me because it's right here, but in the word. Thank you. There we go. In the Bible, right? In the Bible. A simple way to do this to treat the word of God and, or as if it actually is the most precious thing in this world to us. A simple way to begin doing this is that when you wake up in the morning to simply read your Bible and pray. It's like too easy, but we neglect it. It doesn't matter how long or how short you read. It doesn't matter how long or short you pray. But when you approach the word and you read your Bible and you hear and you read God speaking to us, and when you pray and you actually speak back to God, in your heart, believe and act like you are checking in on the most precious thing in the world to you. And I believe that over time, you will eventually find yourself hanging on for dear life onto the precious word of God. That is how we persevere. And then we, with Adoniram Judson, can say, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have made precious and sweet promises to us. That you did not just sit up on high without any need for us and leave us in our own rebellion, leaving us to die in our sadness, in our depression, but that you came down, you sent your son to die for us, and that you promise that you will give us the strength to persevere, and that when we persevere, you will write on us your very own name. Lord, we just ask now that as we continue throughout our week, that we would cling to your word, that we would strongly apprehend you daily, hourly, in your word and in prayer. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.